This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. What I Saw in America by G. K. Chesterton Section 22 Chapter 10 Part 2 Fads and Public Opinion it sounds like a poem about an earthly paradise to say that in this land the old women can be more beautiful than the young. Indeed, I think Walt Whitman, the national poet, has a line somewhere almost precisely to that effect. It sounds like a parody upon Utopia, and the image of the lion lying down with the lamb, to say it is a place where a man might almost fall in love with his mother-in-law. But there is nothing in which the finer side of American gravity and good feeling does more honorably exhibit itself than in a certain atmosphere around the older women. It is not a cant phrase to say that they grow old gracefully, for they do really grow old. In this, the national optimism really has in it the national courage. The old women do not dress like young women. They only dress better. There is another side to this feminine dignity in the old, sometimes a little lost in the young, with which I shall deal presently. The point for the moment is that even Whitman's truly poetic vision of the beautiful old woman suffers a little from that bewildering multiplicity and recurrence that is indeed the whole theme of Whitman. It is like the green eternity of leaves of grass. When I think of the eccentric spinsters and incorrigible grandmothers of my own country, I cannot imagine that any of them could possibly be mistaken for another, even at a glance. And in comparison, I feel as if I had been travelling in an earthly paradise of a more decorative harmonies. And I remember only a vast cloud of grey and pink, as of the plumage of cherubim in an old picture. But on second thoughts, I think this may be only the inevitable effect of visiting any country in a swift and superficial fashion and that the grey and pink cloud is probably an illusion, like the spinning prairies scattered by the wheel of the train. Anyhow, there is enough of this equality and of a certain social unity favourable to sanity to make the next point about America very much of a puzzle. It seems to me a very real problem, to which I have never seen an answer, even such as I shall attempt here. Why a democracy should produce fads, and why where there is so genuine a sense of human dignity, there should be so much of an impossible petty tyranny. I am not referring solely or even specially to prohibition, which I discuss elsewhere. Prohibition is at least a superstition, and therefore next door to a religion. It has some imaginable connection with moral questions, as have slavery or human sacrifice. But those who ask us to model ourselves on the states which punish the sin of drink forget that there are states which punish the equally shameless sin of smoking a cigarette in the open air. The same American atmosphere that permits prohibition permits of people being punished for kissing each other. In other words, there are states psychologically capable of making a man a convict for wearing a blue necktie or having a green front door or anything else that anybody chooses to fancy. There is an American atmosphere in which people may some day be shot for shaking hands, or hanged for writing a postcard. 
As for the sort of thing to which I refer, the American newspapers are full of it, and there is no name for it but mere madness. Indeed, it is not only mad, but it calls itself mad. To mention but one example of many, there was actually boasted that some lunatics were teaching children to take care of their health, and it was proudly added that the children were health-mad, that it is not exactly the object of all mental hygiene to make people mad, did not occur to them, and they may still be engaged in their earnest labors to teach babies to be valetudinarians and hypochondriacs in order to make them healthy. In such cases we may say that the modern world is too ridiculous to be ridiculed. You cannot caricature a caricature. Imagine what a satirist of saner days would have made of the daily life of a child of six who was actually admitted to be mad on the subject of his own health. These are not days in which that great extravaganza could be written, but I dimly see some of its episodes like uncompleted dreams. I see the child pausing in the middle of a cartwheel, or when he has performed three-quarters of a cartwheel in consulting a little notebook about the amount of exercise per diem. I see him pausing halfway up a tree, or when he has climbed exactly one-third of a tree, and then producing a clinical thermometer to take his own temperature. But what would be the good of imaginative logic to prove the madness of such people when they themselves praise it for being mad? There is also the cult of the infant phenomenon, of which Dickens made fun and of which educationalists make fusses. When I was in America, another newspaper produced a marvelous child of six who had the intellect of a child of twelve. The only test given, and apparently one on which the experiment turned, was that she could be made to understand and even to employ the word annihilate. When asked to say something proving this, the happy infant offered the polished aphorism, When common sense comes in, superstition is annihilated. In reply to which, by way of showing that I also am as intelligent as a child of twelve, and there is no arrested development about me, I will say in the same elegant diction, when psychological education comes in, common sense is annihilated. Everybody seems to be sitting round this child in an adoring fashion. It did not seem to occur to anybody that we do not particularly want even a child of twelve to talk about annihilating superstition, that we do not want a child of six to talk like a child of twelve, or a child of twelve to talk like a man of fifty, or even a man of fifty to talk like a fool. And on the principle of hoping that a little girl of six will have a massive and mature brain, there is every reason for hoping that a little boy of six will grow a magnificent and bushy beard. Now there is any amount of this nonsense cropping up among American cranks. Anybody may propose to establish coercive eugenics, or enforce psychoanalysis, that is, to enforce confession without absolution. And I confess I cannot connect this feature with the genuine democratic spirit of the Mass. I can only suggest in concluding this chapter two possible causes, rather peculiar to America, which may have made this democracy so unlike all other democracies, and in this so manifestly hostile to the whole democratic idea. The first historical cause is Puritanism but not Puritanism merely in the sense of Prohibitionism. 
The truth is that prohibitions might have done far less harm as prohibitions if a vague association had not arisen on some dark day of human unreason between prohibition and progress. And it was the progress that did the harm, not the prohibition. Men can enjoy life under considerable limitations, if they can be sure of their limited enjoyments. But under progressive Puritanism we can never be sure of anything. The curse of it is not the limitation, it is the unlimited limitation. The evil is not in the restriction, but in the fact that nothing can ever restrict the restriction. The prohibitions are bound to progress point by point. More and more human rights and pleasures must of necessity be taken away. For it is of the nature of this futurism that the latest fad is the faith of the future, and the most fantastic fad inevitably makes the pace. Thus the worst thing in the seventeenth-century aberration was not so much Puritanism as sectarianism. It searched for truth not by synthesis but by subdivision. It not only broke religion into small pieces, but it was bound to choose the smallest piece. There is in America, I believe, a large religious body that has felt it right to separate itself from Christendom, because it cannot believe in the morality of wearing buttons. I do not know how the schism arose, but it is easy to suppose, for the sake of argument, that there had originally existed some Puritan body which condemned the frivolity of ribbons, though not of buttons. I was going to say of badges, but not buttons. But on reflection, I cannot bring myself to believe that any American, however insane, would object to wearing badges. But the point is that as the Holy Spirit of progressive prophecy rested on the first sect, because it had invented a new objection to ribbons, so that Holy Spirit would then pass from it to the new sect, who invented a further objection to buttons, and from them it must inevitably pass to any rebel among them who shall choose to rise and say that he disapproves of trousers because of the existence of trouser buttons. Each succession in turn must be right because it is recent, and progress must progress by growing smaller and smaller. That is the progressive theory, the legacy of seventeenth-century sectarianism, the dogma implied in much modern politics and the evident enemy of democracy. Democracy is reproached with saying that the majority is always right, but progress says that the minority is always right. Progressives are the prophets, and unfortunately not all the people are prophets. Thus, in the atmosphere of this slowly dying sectarianism, anybody who chooses to prophesy and prohibit can tyrannize over the people. If he chooses to say that drinking is always wrong, or that kissing is always wrong, or that wearing buttons is always wrong, people are afraid to contradict him for fear they should be contradicting their own great-grandchild. For their superstition is an inversion of the ancestor-worship of China. And instead of vainly appealing to something that is dead, they appeal to something that may never be born. There is another cause of this strange servile disease in American democracy. It is to be found in American feminism, and feminist America is an entirely different thing from feminine America. I should say that the overwhelming majority of American girls laugh at their female politicians, at least as much as the majority of American men despise their male politicians. But though the aggressive feminists are a minority, 
they are in this atmosphere which i have tried to analyze the atmosphere in which there is a sort of sanctity about minority and it is this superstition of seriousness that constitutes the most solid obstacle and exception to the general and almost conventional pressure of public opinion when a fad is frankly felt to be anti-national as was abolitionism before civil war or pro-germanism in the great war or the suggestion of racial admixture in the south at all times then the fad meets far less mercy than anywhere else in the world it is snowed under and swept away but when it does not thus directly challenge patriotism or popular ideas a curious halo of hopeful solemnity surrounds it merely because it is a fad but above all if it is a feminine fad the earnest lady reformer who really utters a warning against the social evil of beer or buttons is seen to be walking clothed in light like a prophetess perhaps it is something of the holy oriole which the east sees shining around an idiot but i think there is another explanation feminine rather than feminist and proceeding from normal women and not from abnormal idiots it is something that involves an old controversy but one upon which i have not like so many politicians changed my opinion it concerns the particular fashion in which women tend to regard or rather to disregard the formal and legal rights of the citizen in so far as this is a bias it is a bias in the directly opposite direction from that now lightly alleged there is a sort of underbred history going about according to which women in the past have always been in the position of slaves it is much more to the point to note that women have always been in the position of despots they have been despotic because they ruled in an area where they had too much common sense to attempt to be constitutional you cannot grant a constitution to a nursery nor can babies assemble like barons and extort a great charter tommy cannot plead a habeas corpus against going to bed and an infant cannot be tried by twelve other infants before he is put in a corner and as there can be no laws or liberties in a nursery the extension of feminism means that there should be no more laws or liberties in a state than there are in a nursery the woman does not really regard men as citizens but as children she may if she is a humanitarian love all mankind but she does not respect it still less does she respect its votes now a man must be very blind nowadays not to see that there is a danger of a sort of amateur science or pseudo-science being made the excuse for every trick of tyranny and interference anybody who is not an anarchist agrees with having a policeman at the corner of the street but the danger at present is that of finding the policeman halfway down the chimney or even under the bed in other words it is a danger of turning the policeman into a sort of benevolent burglar against this protests are already being made and will increasingly be made if men retain any instinct of independence or dignity at all but to complain of the woman interfering in the home will always sound like complaining of the oyster intruding into the oyster shell to object that she has too much power over education will seem like objecting to a hen having too much to do with eggs she has already been given an almost irresponsible power over a limited region in these things and if that power is made infinite it will be even more irresponsible if she adds to her own power in the family all these alien fads external to the family her power will not only be irresponsible but 
insane. She will be something which may well be called a nightmare of the nursery, a mad mother. But the point is that she will be mad about other nurseries as well as her own, or possibly instead of her own. The results will be interesting, but at least it is certain that under this softening influence, government of the people, by the people, for the people, will most assuredly perish from the earth. But there is always another possibility. Hints of it may be noted here and there, like muffled gongs of doom. The other day some people preaching some low trick or other for running away from the glory of motherhood were suddenly silenced in New York by a voice of deep and democratic volume. The prigs who potter about the great plains are pygmies dancing round a sleeping giant. That which sleeps so far as they are concerned is the huge power of human unanimity and intolerance in the soul of America. At present the masses in the Middle West are indifferent to such fancies, or faintly attracted to them, as fashions of culture from the great cities. But any day it may not be so. Some lunatic may cut across their economic rights or their strange and buried religion, and then he will see something. He will find himself running like a black who has wronged a white woman, or a man who has set the prairie on fire. He will see something which the politicians fan in its sleep and flatter with the name of the people, which many reactionaries have cursed with the name of the mob, but which, in any case, has had under its feet the crowns of many kings. It was said that the voice of the people is the voice of God, and this at least is certain, that it can be the voice of God to the wicked. And the last antics of their arrogance shall stiffen before something enormous, such as towers in the last words that Job heard out of the whirlwind, and a voice they never knew, shall tell them that his name is Leviathan, and he is Lord over all the children of pride. The end of section 22, the end of chapter 10.